There should be a brown pew Bible somewhere nearby. 513, page 513 in your pew Bible. If you did not bring a Bible of your own this morning, there should be one nearby that you could find. Psalm 13. Psalm 13. should be hot. Here, try this one. Yeah, it's okay. ready to go. Ready? Okay. Uh, I forget uh, sometimes that the psalms are songs. And uh, this is a blues song mm-hmm. with a happy last verse. Yeah. <laughs> but uh, it reminds me that um, Jesus is not so little that I can't express my feelings to him. And, um, and he won't lose his patience. It's part of his spirit. Anyway, long enough, God... You've ignored me long enough. I've looked at the back of your head long enough, long enough. I've carried this ton of trouble, lived with a stomach full of pain. Long enough, my arrogant enemies have looked down their noses at me. Take a good look at me, God. My God, I want to look life in the eyes so no enemy can get the best of me or laugh when I fall on my face. I've thrown myself headlong into your arms. I'm celebrating your rescue. I'm singing at the top of my lungs. I'm so full of answered prayers. That's the message. Psalm 13. Thanks be to God. Thank you. You may be seated. I love that stand. It is a blues song. Like the song we just sang in our offertory, I'm a poor wayfaring sinner. It's It's a blues song. It's the blues. Mark did a great job of bringing that out. And I don't know if we would imagine that God would write blues songs for us to sing. But he does. In fact, most of the book of Psalms are blues songs. So we're going to talk about what God intends for us to understand through that. Would you first pray with me as we come to God's word? Let's pray. Father, we come before you this morning and... Some of us come with great joy and eagerness and excitement to be able to hear from your word and experience your love. And for that, I just give thanks and I pray that you would meet those folks today and that they would just experience your love. But I suspect that for many of us today, we come with a lot of pain. We come with a lot of struggle. We come with a lot of fear, anxiety, or even just distraction, just Some of us don't even feel anymore, but yet here we come to your blues where you draw us into a place of real depth, face-to-face depth with you, where you give words to our pain. Would you help us all today to open our hearts to you in a deeper and fresh way and to allow those things that sometimes we're tempted to escape from or forget or stuffed down real deep in our hearts. Allow us to learn how to bring those things to you and experience your love. So come and be our teacher. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. So kids, here's the first question to get us started, our introduction. So you ready, kids? All right, Zeke's ready to go, man. Do you ever, um, well, let me ask this. Who do you run to? Who do you run to with your complaints, or with your frustration, or with your anger, or with your requests? Who do you run to with those things, Zeke? Your parents, all right. Yes, Jack. 
God, all right, all right. You're more spiritual than I many times. Yes, that's good, Jack, good. Anybody else? Well, let me ask this, because I imagine for many of us it is parents. It's kind of where I was getting at. What are some of the complaints you bring to your parents? Protests, complaints. Yes. It's not fair. There you go. That's a common one. My house, too. I hear that a lot. What else? What other kinds of complaints? What kind of things do you run to your parents with and say, it shouldn't be this way? Jack. Why did you do this? Yeah, why did you do that? Why didn't you do this? Right? Or sometimes we come to them and complain about what we're feeling, whether we're afraid, whether we're frustrated, whether we're angry, or whether, I don't know if you ever hear this one, what are we doing today? I don't want to do something today. We hear that a lot in our house too. Now, if you're a parent, you know this is kind of the reality of being a parent is that Ashley and I sometimes joke that we're the complaint department for our house. (laughs) Children come with their complaints, with their protests, with their struggles, with their all of their emotions and just pour them out to their parents. Very naturally, it's the reality of what children do. And children do that because they feel trust with their parents. I mean, it's a healthy situation whenever children are so confident of their parents' love that they just totally are themselves, that they don't, they don't check what they're going to say before they say it. And that's the reality of this trusting relationship between parents and children. Now, here's the reality, and if you're not a follower of Jesus or kind of just checking Christianity out, one of the most incredible things about Christianity that makes it unique to all other religions in the world is that only in Christianity are we taught that God becomes our father through Jesus, that, that we become his children, that we become his sons and daughters, and all of the intimacy and the freedom that that implies that we enjoy between parents and children, all of that is implied that God is saying, when you come to Christ, when you are united to him, I am your father, and you become my sons and daughters. And it implies all of that intimacy and all of that freedom to come as you are, just as the children do with their parents. Now, what's interesting, what's interesting, I think, as we begin to imagine that, is how different that is, that reality of of children with their parents, how different that is from so often our relationship with God. That so often he is not the one that we run to as a child would to their trusting parent and make our protests or pour out our hearts and say, show up or or ask all the things that children ask. I mean, sometimes children, my children ask for things at a pace that I'm not even able to keep up with. Before I'm able to field one request, ten more are piling in on top. Why is it that we are not like that with our Heavenly Father if you're a follower of Jesus? Why is it so rare that He is the one that we run to with our needs, with our protests even, our complaints, our emotions. Why, why, don't, why doesn't our relationship look more like that, parent and child, where we run to him with all that we are struggling with? How, why is that freedom so rare? 
We're in a series in the book of Psalms where we're, we're calling it Enjoying God, and we're talking about as we're looking at different Psalms, we're talking about how we deepen in our relationship with God, how we deepen in our intimacy with Him. And so what we're going to see in our Psalm today in Psalm 13 is it's a Psalm of the blues, it's a Psalm of lament, we'll talk about what that means in just a minute, but what we see in the Psalm and what we're going to see today is that as we grow in our understanding of God's love for us in Christ, that we are freed and deepened in our relationship with Him. When, when we grow in our understanding of God's love for us in Christ, our engagement and intimacy with God, being real with Him, is deepened in us. That relationship goes deeper, and that's what we're going to see today. So let's look at Psalm 13. Psalm 13, as I mentioned, is a psalm of lament. That might be a new word. That's kind of a churchy word. But a lament uh, is kind of like a blues song, as Stan says. Great way to put it. Or you might think of a lament as a pouring out in a very raw way your, the deepest emotions, uh, pouring out your, your, your pain to God. That's what a lament is. Or you might even think of a, of a lament as a holy complaint. It's hard to even imagine us complaining to God. I mean, we know how to complain to one another, of course. But to imagine that God would be the one that we go to to bring our complaints like a child with a loving parent is often a foreign concept to us. But that's part of what the laments teach us in the Bible. And lament is huge in the Bible. In fact, in the book of Psalms, most of the Psalms are a lament. Most of the book of Psalms are lament songs. What do you think that teaches us about a relationship with God and about what He wants from this relationship with us? So typically in a psalm of lament, you have uh, three common parts. One is that you begin with the psalmist expressing their emotions to God. Then you move to a place where the psalmist is making a plea from, from God, and then finally, often, they end in praise and in faith. Now, what's interesting is that there's two psalms that don't, only two songs that do not end with praise or hope, Psalm 88 and Psalm 44, which I think is incredibly encouraging because sometimes the darkness in the pit is so deep, you can't even hope. And it's a way of God saying, even in those times, even when you cannot bring yourself to praise or to believe, just come and fall at my feet. So as we look at Psalm 13, very much a model of the Psalm of Lament, we're going to see three things uh, that it breaks down very cleanly and neatly in the structure of the psalm. We're going to see, first of all, in verses 1 and 2, we're going to see how David tells God what he feels. So God is inviting us to tell him what we feel. Second of all, to... Ask for what you want. That's what David does. He, he asks in verses 3 and 4 for what he wants, and then finally in verses 5 and 6 to trust God with the result. That's the breakdown of our psalm here. So, first two verses. Just notice how shockingly honest David is. Look again at verses 1 and 2 as he comes. How long, O Lord? 
Will you forget me forever? How long will you hide your face from me? How long must I wrestle with my thoughts and every day have sorrow in my heart? How long will my enemy triumph over me? Let me just ask a question and kind of throw that out there for us. What emotions do you see that David is expressing in those first two verses? Not a rhetorical question, really. Despair. Despair. You mean to tell me we can express despair to God? Absolutely. Stan. He feels abandoned by God. You ever feel abandoned by God? You might not want to you might not want to admit that, but I imagine each one of us has felt that. What else do you see in here that he feels? Carrie. Yes, that God has been unfair. He feels mistreated. What else? Anything else? What about uh, what about just what he in verse two? Look at how he says, "How long must I wrestle with my thoughts and every day have sorrow in my heart?" Just the the phrase of wrestling with my thoughts is very much the experience of depression, and it's the experience of anxiety and debilitating fear. But do you know that place? Have you ever been in a season in your life? where there is such deep emotional struggle in your heart that you can't make it stop and you feel like there is an internal battle and you're just wrestling, maybe even to get up in the morning, maybe even to make it work, maybe even to function. It feels just like a wrestling match with your thoughts and your inner emotions. David is being incredibly bold about his emotions. He even mentions his enemies. I mean, he's feeling like... His enemies are getting the best of him. He feels like these, uh, he has unjust, real-life, flesh-and-blood enemies in his life, and they're winning, and they're going to win. And so he's angry. The thing to see is that David is so bold to come before the Lord and just to pour these things out right where he is, to tell God what he feels not to couch it, not to clean it up, but just to come raw and real like a child to a parent with exactly where he is and just to tell it to God exactly how it is. Now, this is hard, I think, for many of us to imagine because for the simple reason that we don't like the E word, emotions. I know there's many of us, we don't like even the concept of emotions. We don't like to feel our emotions. We don't like anybody else to tell us about their emotions. We don't like it whenever a conversation moves to a place of emotional depth because it feels vulnerable. It feels panicky. It feels like it's a mysterious place. What if I start to feel something and I can't turn it off? For some of us, we do this because we have felt deep, deep pain in our life. And whenever you feel deep pain... Very often what you want to do is say, no matter what, I don't want to feel that again. And so we learn to shut our hearts down. You know that reality? Just to stuff it down and say, I'm not going to feel. Being numb is better than pain. And so we learn how to shut our hearts down. We learn how to, to medicate and, and to... We, we learn how to just make ourselves not feel anymore. In fact, there was a number of years ago, there was an article written called Prozac Nation talking about our culture 
and the epidemic of depression in our culture and it was made some striking statements of literally how antidepressants are now more prescribed in our culture not only than any other culture in the world but than any other medication even in our own country and so the article's making the point of what is wrong with our culture that we are so emotionally unstable so anxious as a culture so we find ourselves in a culture that's always wanting to escape from emotion always wanting to shut down always wanting to mask over the things that we feel in our life just this past week I was talking to a friend of mine he's walking through a challenging transition season in his life and this is not a guy who's often emotional in any way and I was just talking to him I said hey how's everything going and he just started to get a little emotional right there in the moment and I could tell he didn't want to but instead of changing the subject which is what we know how to do so how about that weather you know I said, um, so tell me about that. What's that been like? And all of a sudden, it started to well up more, and it's like, oh, no, oh, no, oh, no. That's what they were thinking. And they said, uh, I'm just trying to stay busy. And, and I said, my reply was, well, don't do that. Don't just use busyness to make this go away. You see, that's often the reaction in us, that whenever we begin to feel something, pain, sadness, difficulty, almost immediately we want to find some way to make it stop, to make it go away. And busyness is a great way to do that. Work is a great way to do that. And so often we, we'll hear that cliche all the time, I'm just trying to stay busy when somebody's walking through grief. I'm just trying to stay busy. I'm trying to avoid the pain. That's not good. You see, the Psalms teach us, bring that to God. Express it. Sometimes we think, and I think this is very often the message in religion, that it's unspiritual to feel negative emotions. Right? So in the church, kind of the, the it's not always stated outright, but the underlying message that we always hear is just be positive. You know, come with a smile on your face. We always joke about, you know, you're, you're in the car on the way to church and you're fighting with your spouse and your kids are fighting in the back and you're swinging your arm back there to make them stop. You know, it's chaos. And then you show up at church and there goes the smile. How you doing? Great. Better than I deserve. There's some sort of, sort of unspoken thing where we believe it's more spiritual to be positive even if it's not true. Just fake it till you make it. I mean, you might be all torn up on the inside, but put that smile on. God's been good to me. But it's not true. If it is true, that's wonderful. It's great to rejoice in the midst of pain. But you don't have to fake it. And what's interesting is that in evangelicalism, faking positivity is like an epidemic. It's like an 11th commandment. Listen to this. A number of years ago, 2005, a writer for Harper's Magazine, which is a pretty liberal publication, no friend of the church. This guy's an unbeliever, a journalist, and he goes to do a story just on megachurches in America. And he goes in, he's just going to observe what he sees, and he writes. And he writes this, his observation of what's common in worship in America. And he says this, They sound like they're singing in beer commercials. And perhaps this is not coincidental. There are no sad songs. 
in a megachurch. And there are no angry songs. There are songs about desperation, but none about despair. There are songs, uh, their songs convey longingly only if it has already been fulfilled. It's very easy for us in our culture to only speak about brokenness if it's in the past. It's very easy for us to talk about desperation only if it's already been fulfilled. But as we come to the Psalms, it is remarkable how God is saying to us. I mean, this is, it is in the Bible because God is saying, this is what I want from you. The majority of the Psalms are Psalms of lament where a psalmist comes and pours out the rawness of their emotions before God because God wants that kind of engagement from us. Depth of relationship. He doesn't want a mask. He doesn't want pretending. He wants realness. Your soul, your heart. It's incredibly freeing whenever you see that, that I don't have to clean up. To come to God. And unless we begin to understand this, that I gotta be able to sing the blues to God. I gotta be able to hurt to Him. I gotta be able to pour out the rawness of my emotion before I clean it up. Because so often as we come to God, we think, I can't say that because it's impolite before God. As we learned last week, He knows every thought in our mind. Who are you fooling? But the Psalms of Lament are a way of God saying, I want the real you, I want fullness of engagement. In the midst of your pain, I want you to come to me and pour it out. That's what the Psalms of Lament teach us. Well, secondly, they teach us over and over and over to ask for what you want. Now, I just want to touch on this quickly because I want to, we could get hung up here. But just to touch on it quickly, just to notice, and this is very common in the Psalms of Lament, to pour out your emotions, but then to ask very specifically for what you want. And David does that in verses 3 and 4 where he says, look at me. Just imagine that. Imagine saying to God, look at me. Because David feels like God has turned away. He feels abandoned by God. Look on me. I need your face. I need your attention. And then he says, answer me. It almost feels demanding, right? The boldness of it. But yet, here again... It's teaching us, inviting us for this boldness of engagement to come and ask God. So often we don't want to ask because we think, no, maybe there's some selfishness in there. Well, of course there is. Our children never, I mean, what would you do if your child was like, hey, mom and dad, never mind, it's probably a bit selfish, I shouldn't ask it. What would you think? You'd either think this is a manipulative game right here, Or you would think, I need to take them to a psychologist. Because children don't sit there and analyze their emotions before they ask something. Why don't they do that? Because the trust is so deep. They just ask it. And they ask and ask and ask. A child is sitting there thinking, not should I ask this, but if if I don't ask it, I'm not going to get it. And so I'm going to ask it as quick as I possibly can. So the Psalms of Lament say, ask. He can sort out the selfishness of your request. I mean, the truth is, very often we're going to ask to be able to eat cake at 12 o'clock at night, the equivalent of it as a child, to God. We're going to ask that. We're going to ask the equivalent of before God, just like children do of parents. Can I watch TV all day? 
We are going to ask for selfish things. We are going to ask for things that are not good for us. But the point is, God can handle it. He can sort it out. The point is, ask and engage. And then thirdly, trust him with the outcome. You know what's interesting about this psalm and almost every one of the psalms of lament is that they end with praise. Do you see that? In verses 5 and 6, look again at what he says. My heart, second part of verse 5, my heart rejoices in your salvation. Verse 6, I will sing to the Lord. He's praising. It ends in praise. Now realize this. The situation has not changed. The answer has not come. The circumstances have not changed. But yet in the midst of the pain, he rejoices. He praises God. There's almost a sense of expectation that God's going to show up. He doesn't know when. That's an incredible picture. How are the Psalms of Lament, in the midst of that pain, able to praise? How are you able to do that? And here's the key. Faith. That's it. The only way that you can praise God The only way that you can rejoice in the midst of pain, and I realize this is not small stuff. David is deep in pain. He doesn't understand it. But yet in the midst of that, he rejoices. How do you do that? Faith. Not faith, and this is important, not faith in a particular outcome. That's oftentimes the way that we think about faith. Well, I just got to have faith. A lot of times what we mean by that is that you just got to believe that thing is going to happen. You got to believe it's going to turn out in a specific way. And that is not what the Bible teaches about faith. It teaches you are not trusting in an outcome. You are trusting in a person. And that's what it is. It is a confidence in God. It is a relying upon Him. It is a depending upon Him. It is a, it is a trusting in Him that is rooted in your knowledge of who He is. And that's exactly what David says right here. Look again at verse 5. But I will trust in what? In your unfailing love. What is the basis of his trust? He knows who God is. He knows who God has revealed himself to be. He knows that God has revealed himself his unfailing love to his people, and that becomes the basis of his trust, even in the midst of pain. Now, as we remember last week, this phrase, unfailing love, shows up over and over and over, not only in the Psalms, but the whole Bible, and it is a translation of the Hebrew word, hesed. We should, look, we should know that word. It's a beautiful word. And it's the Hebrew word that means covenant love. It's very different from our kind of love. As we think about love, oftentimes our love is a love for something because of what it gives to us, something that it offers to us or how attractive something is. We say, I love that. But that's not what hesed is. Hesed is God's covenantal love. That is a love that is promised, a love that has been sealed by blood. It's a love that has as its basis not anything in us, not our sincerity, not our performance, not our works, not our goodness. None of that is the basis of hesed. The basis of hesed is God's character. It's his love. It's his determination. It's his promise. It's his loving us because he loves us because he loves us. There's no reason for it. 
It is rooted in His promise. That is what His hesed is. And throughout the Old Testament, we see that the hesed is the basis of Israel's relationship with God in the midst of all of their sin. He does not abandon them because of His hesed, because He has sealed and bound Himself to them by blood. And of course, in the New Testament, God's hesed becomes personal and takes on flesh. It's the gospel. God's love for us in Christ is his hesed. His love that is sealed, not by our goodness, not by our sincerity, but by the shed blood of Christ. As we are united to Jesus, his unfailing love becomes ours, in spite of everything that's true of us. And that is the most ultimate basis of our trust. Not anything in us, not even an outcome. The Apostle Paul says in Romans 8, he says, He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also, along with him, graciously give us all things? You follow the logic of what Paul's saying? He takes us back to the gospel. He takes us back to the cross. And he said, now think about this for a minute. God did not spare his one and only son, the thing that is most precious to him in the whole universe. And now if you have a son or a daughter, you can connect a little bit to the logic of that. He who did not spare his own son, do you think he's going to give up his son for you and then abandon you? It's unthinkable. No, no, if, if he gave up his son for you, how will he not also, along with him, graciously give us all things? That is the logic of the gospel. If God gave up His one and only Son when we were His enemies, as Paul says early in Romans, when we were His enemies, not having any interest in Him, not moving towards Him, not doing anything to deserve His love, He sent His Son to reconcile us to Himself. That is the ultimate assurance of God's hesed love for you. And the more deeply you are convinced of that love, the more that it frees you to run to Him and lament. The more that it frees you to be like a child before Him, to run with all kinds of requests, and even, even to rejoice in the midst of pain. How can you possibly do that in our world? Only whenever you are convinced, wait a minute, He gave up His Son for me, and I am now His son or His daughter. All the affections of heaven are upon me, and he has promised me that he is working all things for my ultimate good. And as those realities hit home in your heart, you know what you can do? I'll praise you in the midst of pain. I will trust you. I don't know where this is going. I don't know how this is going to work out. But I know that you love me with an unfailing love, so I will praise you in the pain. And listen to this. Only a true son or child of God, only a true Christian can praise in the midst of pain. Let me end just with an illustration from my own life. Uh, many of you know that a little over a year ago, um, my son Bo got sick. And it was, it was one of those sicknesses where immediately right off the bat, we knew this thing was serious. Uh, he woke up and he he had a very high fever, and he had this look on his face that was just, 
drained of life. Uh, he was just kind of whimpering. He wasn't even crying. He was just kind of whimpering in his neck. He couldn't move his neck. And it was very scary, and we took him to the hospital. And, and one of the things you need to know about me is that one of my greatest fears is to lose a child. And uh, there's some folks in our own congregation and dear friends who've walked through that in their life and know the reality of that and the, the depth and the pain of that. But it's always been one of my greatest fears. I don't know why. And yet, as he was this sick, I'm immediately, that place of fear is just running rampant in my heart. And so we go into the ER, and they realize that it was a, an infection deep in the tissue in the back of his throat near his spine. And they told us right off the bat, this is very dangerous. And they, they never told us that, that they thought that, that his life was in danger, but it was, incredibly, it was incredibly scary. And I'm thinking of the reality that I could lose my son here. And my first tendency was to panic in the midst of that. I mean, just absolute panic. And as we're in there and they're running the tests and they're talking about procedures and my heart was just like in a storm. And I knew I had to give this to the Lord. I didn't want to. I wanted to retain control and just turn the screws, you know, on the, on the doctors and the nurses and try to control it, at least through my fear. But I knew I got to go meet with him. And so I left and I went and I found a quiet place that was actually in my car in the parking deck at Erlanger. And I, it was like the dam broke. I just broke. Full on lament. Deep as you can go. And I poured out my emotions to God. I told him everything that I was feeling. I told him all of my fears. And I asked him to save my son and to heal my son. Well, you see, I realized at the time I realized that I don't know what you're going to do. I don't know where this is going to go. I know that you've not guaranteed me that. But you know what I had to believe in that moment? I had to believe that you love me, and you love my son, and you are sovereign even over this, and you are working all things for my good, even this. And you know what I had to do in that moment in order to be able to praise him in the midst of the pain? I had to preach the gospel to myself. That's what I did. I was just talking to myself and God and just rehearsing all of the truths of the gospel. I am your son. You sent your one and only son and you have purchased me with your blood. And I am yours. And I have your delight, not because of anything in me, but because of the work of Jesus in my place. And I'm, I'm literally loading my heart up with the truths of the gospel so that I could believe, so that I could trust, so that I could rejoice, even in the midst of not knowing how it was going to end. And I tell you, it was one of the most intimate experiences with the Lord. When it was all unresolved and I didn't know how it was going to work out, the intimacy with the Lord was deep and was real in the midst of lament. Let me stop there and just give us a few moments to interact together. Michael's going to get the mic. But how does that strike you as we... I know this is, a, this is a very different concept to even think about lament. Maybe even uncomfortable. So how does this strike you? How does this move you? How does it challenge you? Let's hear from one another. Hey, I want to... Uh, 
there was a time when uh, Peyton, when, when she was two, when uh, we found out she had diabetes. And I remember, I mean, Stephanie called me. I was at work, and <laughs> I was driving down the road, and, and like you, it just, I was crying my eyes out, and I, I yelled at God. I was like, why? I just yelled. I don't know how many times I yelled it, and I don't even know after anything I said, I just remember yelling, why? And then I remember it just, it was going to be okay. You know, just after, he he just like, okay, Michael, just let it out. Just, mm-hmm. just spill it out. And um, I remember being in the hospital. I had to stay there three days, and it's like a hose, fire hose of information. And and then uh, just that the whole next few weeks trying to fix it still, you know, and still asking God why. But he through the whole time, every time he showed me that it's going to be okay. Yeah. And asking for healing. And, and still, she still has diabetes today. But And I still ask why a lot of times. But then he immediately reminds me and he shows me. He says, look past and see what God has done already. Mm. You know. But through that time, I was taught... When I would tell people, "Don't yell at God," you know, you know, don't yell at God. Don't do that. Don't don't be honest with Him, you know. And so I thought, well, okay, maybe I'm not doing that right. And then you preaching through this, and then me uh, reading that uh, Eugene Peterson book, uh, "Long Obedience in the Same Direction," which I highly recommend. Teaching him that the psalmist was just raw and real and. Just poured it out like he. I'm reading some of the Psalms. It's like, wow, he wants to smash the teeth and 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 kill my enemy. I'm like, is that okay to do? Can I say that about these people? I don't like out there, Lord. You know, and uh, and, and Eugene Peterson says we should be able to cuss to God and be able to just be real and raw. I mean, God's not going to like, oh, you're you're done. You know, lightning. You can't say that. You know, He wants us to be real with Him and have that relationship with Him. Just like we are with our friends, I mean, mm. and that's thank you for doing this and and also introducing me to that book. Uh, mm. It's been, I think it's crazy just through this and a, a fresh, you know, a freshness in my prayer life now that I can just not feel like I'm, I'm just going through the motions. Got to be polite. Yeah. 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 Anybody else? Thank you, Michael. That's a great Donnelly. And I sometimes fall back into that of more of that friend that you haven't seen in 10 years. And so it's the house has got to be clean. Yeah. Let's not tell them about those things. Um, and, and we forget that God made every fabric of our mm-hmm. being. And he knows, mm-hmm. he knows about all the scum and he knows all about those things because he knit them together with his own hands by yeah. his design and he cooked it up to make only one of you and somehow we miss that yeah. and we think well I can't talk to him about that because he won't understand yeah and yet he, he, he he's waiting for that yeah. conversation yeah thank you Donnelly so true anybody else Sandra been excellent and very encouraging to me 
Uh, we have a second house that we didn't need to flip for quite some time. Had a contract, and we we're all excited. And yesterday it fell through. But interestingly enough about what you said, I have had a work has happened in my husband's heart. And it came to me, you know, whatever it takes for this to continue, whether it's to sell a house or not, it's in God's hands. And I'd rather have, hit, see his hand in my husband's life than just see the riches of how he's blessed in our marriage than selling any house or anything. So it, I, I truly, this has helped me to realize whatever happens, he's still God. Yeah. So I guess I have a question because I'm pretty good at complaining and I feel like even not just two people, but I feel like I complain fairly well to God. Mm-hmm. But I guess I don't know, like, if that's fine, if that's what you're saying, or if it also needs to be paired with the praising to be, um, like, what the Lord is looking for. And I guess in me saying that, it's kind of telling of my heart, like, I want to do the right thing to yeah. make sure that I'm like have the Lord's favor, uh-huh. which is very telling of my sin already. But yeah. um, so I guess I don't know if that question really makes sense, but I think it does. And then a, a second part would be like, is it wrong to lament to like the body? And when what's the line between just like complaining about it and it being like holy lament or is it only yeah. holy lament if it's to God? Yeah, that's a great question. I think they're related I think to the second question, it is, it is not wrong to lament to each other. In fact, we're called to mourn with one another. Um, but I think that oftentimes we only do that. We only lament to each other. And so I think that your lament to God has got to be proportionally greater than your lament to each other. And I think that's a key piece. But you know, to the first question... I think that, you know, if you, if you think about the lament, you have both rawness and realness of emotion, full-on, unhindered, and yet you have real, bold trust and praise at the same time. And I think oftentimes we can tend to one or the other. You know, we want to lean to one or the other. Like some of us like just complain, just we're talking, we're complaining. You know, sometimes that's very natural. But there's no trust, there's no hope, there's no belief, which is an act of the will. You know, faith is choosing to believe something you can't see. And so we can choose to believe, and I think that's what they're calling us to do. Other people can tend in the other direction, you can't be real, and so you skip over that and you just get to the praise. Well, I'm praising him, you know, he's going to take care of me, I'm blessed. But unless you've experienced the pain, that's not really real. It's not real trust. You know, trust is taking hold of something in the midst of pain, in the midst of it being invisible. And, and so you've got to have that balance of both. And so that's why the Psalms of Lament, that's why I hope, I'm hoping throughout this series that you're going to want to read the Psalms more because the Psalms form this in us they teach us how to do it you know you don't just need instruction on how to do it you need God's word shaping your prayers and and teaching you how to do it so I think one of the best ways to to grow in this is to use the psalms 
Use them every day. I use the Psalms every day. I read at least a Psalm or two every single day, and so I know something is getting me into God's Word, and is getting me relationally with God, face-to-face with Him. Uh, so they help us to train us to teach us how to lament. Does that help? You know, there's this, the two poles of it. And so you might be pouring it out, but not taking that step of, you are God, you have promised me, you love me, and I'm going to trust you in this. Carrie? Right, yeah, 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 yes, yes. Like is his pleasure, his acceptance, his love in some way based upon what I do? And I would say, you know, it's Hesed. He loves you, he delights in you, because again, you know, it's, it's union with Christ. If you are in union with Christ, he looks upon you in the way that he looks upon his son. All the affection he has for Jesus he has for his people who are in union with Christ. And so that's, a, that's a, an acceptance that's rooted in him and based upon nothing in me. But yet beyond that, there, there is a, I can please him and I can grieve him. It's a real relationship, you know. Not, not in a way where he's going to cut you off, but in a way that I think the most helpful way to think of it is a parent and a child. You know, I delight in my children. I love them. They're the, the deepest affection of my heart, but they can make me really mad, and they can grieve me, and they can, you know, fill my heart with, you know, all kinds of stuff, but yet my love is not touched in any way. In fact, it would be unloving if I didn't care about all of those things, you know. So that's part of that question of, can I please and displease God? Yes, we can. We can displease him. We can please him. But yet, if you're in Christ, you will never lose his acceptance and love and delight. Does that make sense? Yeah, Corey. As you were preaching, one of the things that came to my mind was a conversation that Christ had with the Samaritan woman and what was and wasn't really going on in that yeah. conversation. <laughs> and, uh, and I don't recall that there's many times that that the Bible tells us that God seeks something. Huh. And um, the one thing here, it says that, uh, but the hour is coming and now is when true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. Uh-huh. And for the Father is seeking such to worship him. God is spirit and those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. Uh-huh. And that was coming to my mind for this very reason is this idea of being bare before the lord mm. being very honest before the lord and yet seeing god for who he is yeah. as you did as you were talking about wrestling with god and his promises and yeah. his declarations of you and yet being very truthful as to how you are and god is actually seeking those who will be that yes kind of yes that's a that's a great great point well let me close this now in uh I think, let's see, we probably need to finish up. We can keep talking about it afterwards, but uh, worship team, you guys go ahead and come up. And uh, great conversation. And let me just encourage you, you don't just have to talk about this during the sermon. We can talk about this together in conversation about how we're learning 
how to lament, how to be real with God. So let me pray for us. Father, I guess what we most need to be convinced of is the extent of your love for us in Christ. Would we be so rooted in the gospel? Would we be so moved by the fact that you gave your son up? You forsaked him. You turned from him on the cross in order that we might be reconciled to you forever. And I pray that, that in that truth, that we would just know deep in our hearts of the depths of your love that are beyond searching out. And as we're convinced of your love, that we would have the trust, the courage to be able to be real before you. Even to be able to, to praise in the midst of our pain. Sometimes, Lord, the pain is so real and it's so huge that we, it just it overwhelms us with thinking that you are not good. But help us to be so rooted in the gospel that even in those times, we can praise. Because we know your Hesed unfailing love. Do this in us as a community that we would suffer in joy and make plain the gospel to our community. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.